Hey whores, I've got something to share. I love magic wands and I love anal toys. So I've partnered with LaWand and B-Vibe to get you the best discounts on their entire site. From now until June 30, get 20% off the entire store by using code SEXEDWITHTIM at checkout. Get yourself a rumbly magic wand or even a rimming plug and get you coming, baby. That's Lawand and B-Vibe, and use code SEXEDWITHTIM for 20% off both stores. Check the description for more details, and I'll see you at your next orgasm. Mwah! The Sex Ed with Tim podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people. We acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty, signed with multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. You're listening to Sex Ed with Tim. <laughs> And welcome to another episode of the Sex Ed with Tim podcast. I am your host, Tim. I am a certified sex educator. I identify as a chaotic homosexual. And people, what's the difference between a woman sleeping with lots of men and a gay guy sleeping with lots of men? One is called a slut and the other is called networking. Um, ah! <laughs> <no. laughs> Do you like that, Michael? <laughs> that was good. That was good. <laughs> I mean, right? I swear, like the way I got into my career was just like, oh, you like it doggy style? Well, we're gonna show you how to like it better and up your doggy game, said Daddy. Um <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> It's so stupid. I'm trash. I don't know how I have a show. Um, but anyways, uh, listeners, that wonderful Australian accent that you hear on the other end of the mic is none other than the author of The Wisdom of Gunkles, Mr. Michael Dumlau. Hello, Michael. Hello, hello. Como esta? And thank you so much for having me. Oh my god, como esta? It's such an honor. I am truly a fan of your book i am taking my sweet ass time reading your book uh only because it's like the way you write it is so beautiful but before we get into that uh give us a little bit about who is michael uh yes so uh, my name is michael dumlao my pronouns are he they um if you call yourself a chaotic homosexual um, I am a, you know, probably anally organized one, but like, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, but, but at the same time, I also like, you know, dip into some chaos as well. Cause I love my, I love me some like good messy chaos from one, from time to time. <laughs> um, I was born in Manila in the Philippines and then, uh, raised, me in, too. And raised in Sydney, Australia. That's where this weird accent comes from. And then my family, uh, escaped. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then uh, we escaped both the Philippines and the toxic masculinity of Australia and ended up in California. And so I actually spent most of my um, adolescence in Southern California in Santa Barbara. Uh, and then I went to um, college for a little while in, in back home in Sydney. And then after discovering that what I really needed was the cold seasonal um, you know, weather, I decided to move to the East Coast. And I've lived in Washington, D.C. for the past 21 years. I love that. So she's a globetrotter. Hello. Oh, my God. This, you've been around the world. and no, I'm just, I like to call myself geographically indecisive. <laughs> oh, you know what? I feel that. Because I feel like I have not just corona, but like the travel bug. Um, no, I'm not. <laughs> I truly do. I, there's always like some other place just like calling my name. Uh, but since, you know, Miss Rona has ruined the party, I'm kind of just like stuck here. I'm like, you know what? I'll just uh, settle on fucking local men. I'm going to have to buy farm to table rather than importing. And so exporting. it's locally sourced, though. That's very ethical. Very right. Footprint of you. 
It's I'm trying to lower my carbon footprint by <laughs> by buying dick from local vendors. Right, right. And eating ass from people you trust. And exactly. And eating ass, as I heard it very recently, is keto and vegan. I'm like, oh, yes, skinny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, Michael, I brought you on to talk about your book, The Wisdom of Gunkles. And I am just struggling to finish it, mainly because when I finish something, I get that like, oh, like when you when you enjoy a show and it's like, Oh, it's done. So that's why I'm like taking my sweet ass time reading your book. And it's so beautifully written. And um, we're going to talk all about it today. Uh, but first, I want to read a page from your book because it it's just like it sells the book so well about um, the Wisdom of Gunkles. And uh, it's like basically the thesis. And it's on page 14 for anyone listening. And you got the book right in front of you. It goes a little something like this. Throughout these children's lives, we serve as the cool, non-judgmental adult they turn to for the stuff they can't talk to mom and dad about. As queer people, we know what it means to hide a secret, to discover the truth about ourselves and find courage to face the forces that would otherwise tell us to keep quiet. We are there to help them shout that truth from their hearts, just as we did and likely to continue to do every day. When we tell them to be themselves, to love themselves, that they are perfect just the way they are, we do so with life-hardened conviction because we ourselves know just how difficult it can be to believe it. And when we tell them we love them, that we will protect them and elevate them, we do so with passion and ferocity because they are every bit a part of who we are. Oh my God. Like, I, I'm... I'm almost going to cry um, because it, it's just so like, it, it's such a beautiful summary of what it means to be a gunkle slash queer elder. But mm-hmm. I want to know uh, from your standpoint, I mean, I just fully read the book, but like, um, <laughs> like what are your personal definitions of gunkleism of being a queer elder um you know it's funny you should say you should say so one of the interviewers that i've been uh so one of the podcasts that i inter- that i that i chatted with recently asked me who my first gunkle was who the very my very first experience of having a gunkle was and the thing is you know as a filipino it's not like my childhood was brimming with queer men out and proud you know giving me advice right um, and so if I look to, you know, the definition of a gunkle as somebody who serves as a black sheep, someone who serves to disrupt and defy and redefine traditions, as somebody who really tries to chart a new path with the entire world telling them that they cannot step one foot forward unless it is on the path they intend for them, then I have to point to my Lola. I have to point to my grandmother. Aww. My grandmother was a single woman, a single mother who raised four children um, basically her entire life because uh, she unfortunately lost my Lolo very, very young. And um, and she could have basically receded into the background, but instead fought on not only to raise her children, but to really raise a community. And she fought to have a career in the politics. She was fought to have businesses, to have influence, to become a leader in the community. Um, during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, at a time uh, in the Philippines when, you know, a, a, a single woman in the barrio, like, you know, in the northern villages, trying to raise, um, you know, children on her own, um, being told that she needed to remarry, but she didn't want to, like, all these things. And the fact that, for me, that was a demonstration of somebody who was defying, you know, all these expectations that were not her truth. And what she did was she always taught us that, you know, we had to live who we are. Um, unfortunately, she died before I could come out to her formally. Um, oh, no. But I would like to think that I do carry on her legacy um, as somebody who, you know, absolutely lives in defiance of a lot of expectations that would not see me as, you know, living my truth. I think of it, you know, or or as in defiance of basically cultures that would otherwise keep uh, people like us silent, right, or hidden. Um, and I feel like for me, that is absolutely what I would define as being a gunkle, right? As somebody who walks that path of the black sheep, who elevates others, who is a beacon to others who are different and then creates um, safety so that we can be who we truly are. 
So a gunkel doesn't necessarily have to be like a gay older man. No, because absolutely. in your case, it's your Lola. Yeah, I mean, for me, like obviously, like the most obvious is a gay uncle. I mean, gunkel means gay uncle, but actually, in um, in the book itself, you know, there are definitely um, you know other permutations of queer wisdom and queer elders. Um, and actually, in my journey of of like talking about this book, um, you know, I've discovered uh, lanties, truncles, tronties. Uh, my favorite recent um, one was uh, somebody asked, "I'm a." asked me what a bisexual aunt or sorry a pansexual aunt would be and she was like does that make me a pont and i said no that makes you a panty which <laughs> means that if there's more than one of you you are panties and then by extension if you get you know wet in the rain that makes you moist panties <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> you know oh my god i love that moist Panty. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. Leave it to queer people to reinvent the language and reclaim just the nastiest, dirtiest things. Oh, I fucking love that. That's... <laughs> I mean, trust me, it's already been it's, it's already been considered that maybe I should put together like a little uh, children's like ABCs. <laughs> you know what? That can be the sequel to Wisdom of Gunkers. Yeah, exactly, the ABCs of queer wisdom. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, the ABCs of queer wisdom will be the new Bible. Yeah, it will be sold at Barnes and Noble, at Chapters everywhere. Absolutely. I can't wait, and I cannot wait to buy the sequel. But um, yeah, that that is so awesome. And I wanted to ask you as well, um, because I'm pretty sure this book was not just like an overnight thing. So mm-hmm. really, what inspired you to write Wisdom of Gunkles? So I wrote this book um, last year when the world was in chaos. And uh, specifically, I was um, I was being asked by my cousin, who is Filipina and married to an African American man, and they have two amazing, adorable nieces, who I am proud to consider my nieces, um, as well as I am the guardian to them as well. So, and um, especially last year, when um, you know, as young women, as young Asian women, as young Black women, as young biracial women, it felt like 2020 was the year that seemed to attack all parts of their identity from all sides. Um, My cousin felt that I was uniquely equipped to help the girls sort of like negotiate, you know, um, everything that was happening around them and, and understand, and more importantly, affirm their worth and their value when it seemed like the world was set to to completely deny them of it. Right. And so, um, you know, as I was talking to them about, um, you know, the Me Too movement, about the rise of anti-API hate, about Black Lives Matter, um, you know, the conversations we were having, um, you know, were, were becoming something that we felt that we needed to capture in some way, like whether it would be a letter, whether it be a tweet, whether it be, uh, you know, whatever. I, uh, but it ended up being a book. So my cousin basically says, you know, you really need to, like, capture this in a book. Um, and so I managed to... Um, to find an opportunity to basically pitch my book to my current publisher. And um, and they actually ended up giving me a book deal for two uh, books. So there is actually going to be definitely a second book in the horizon. Yes. Um, and the book itself actually, I would say, took only a few months really to write, only because because um, I literally, like I got the deal like in, in September of last year, I started writing October, I submitted my manuscript in January. So it was a very, very fast process. Um, even identifying um, the gunkles in the book. So one of the things, too, that I, I, I very, very quickly pivoted was that this book could not just be reflective of my own experience and my own insights and, and quote-unquote wisdom. It needed to be reflective of a whole pantheon of, of queer wisdom, a pantheon of queer experiences and lived experiences, especially if I wanted it to be something that was relevant, you know, to a wider group of people. That said, I was also very, very intentional about making sure that a majority of my gunkles and the people in my book were people of color, were immigrants, uh, were people who escaped, um, you know, socioeconomic turmoils, who dealt with trauma. In fact, I would say a lot of, if not everyone in the book, walked, has walked and continues to walk this really interesting and very, very enlightening path from trauma to triumph where triumph is something that they themselves define what that means for them. And I love that. Um, But also I wanted to make sure that people were, the people in this book were representative of an LGBTQ narrative that we frankly do not see a lot of, right? Like non-cis, non-white, non-presenting, non-mask, you know, like 
I wanted to make sure that I represented myself, frankly, as a femme representing brown immigrant, uh, you know, who, um, you know, really delights in, you know, in the gender non-binary and, and sits in that. You know, I wanted to present for myself and for my community and for people like me, and more importantly, for kids like me as well. Um, and so for me, for me, the evolution of the of the book was something that I think for me started to encompass my own appreciation for the true diversity, like the true diversity of the LGBTQ experience and how critical it is for us to constantly uh, make sure that we protect it and we elevate it and we visualize it. I agree, because even like the way you write your book is so beautiful. It's written like sort of like anthology. Like it kind of reminds me of, you know, um, Dolly Parton's series on Netflix. <laughs> where it's just <laughs> Right? It, it kind of reminds me of that. Where it's like, uh, you know, every single episode is based on a song and it's a different story altogether. And then uh, you have like, uh, every chapter is named after a very pivotal moment in the queer experience. So for example, you got the Black Sheep, the Pioneer, the Explorer, the Alchemist, the Beacon. Right now I'm on the bridge, which is your chapter. Mm -hmm. And I fucking love that. So um, how did you go about collecting all of these gunkle experiences like in such a short time frame? Well, I am very blessed in intentionally creating a very diverse, very creative, and um, very vibrant chosen family around me. Um, so everyone, and chosen family in of itself is a very, very much a central theme in my book. Um, because as I say in my book, you know, for many LGBTQ people, our chosen families are the only family that we have, especially for those of us who left, um, you know, not just our families back home um, or are just not accepted in our families. Um, the chosen family becomes really the core place where we find the love and affirmation that we are seeking and that we need, frankly, as, as human beings. And so I, um, I am very blessed to have created one over the past 21 years of living apart from my biological family here in Washington, D.C. So everyone in the book, um, actually, a majority of them, I will do a complete shout out, as I always do, to the Gay Men's Course of Washington. Um, I am queer and Filipino, which means, of course, I sing, which means, of course, I do karaoke. <laughs> <laughs> just, like you know, they, like I literally like came out my mom's womb with a karaoke mic, with a magic mic. <laughs> I lahat tayo, Michael. Kuya Michael, can I call you Kuya Michael? Oh my of course, god! Of course, I mean sometimes Kuya, sometimes Ate. It really depends on my mood. Kuya but... Ate, Ate Kuya, <laughs> Kuya Ate. And so, like everyone in my book, really, um, you know, comes from sort of that space. So either I sing with them with a the gay men's chorus. Or they come from my professional world as well. So um, I've spent the last 20 years in corporate uh, and the last um, 12 years, 12 to 13 years in defense and intelligence <laughs> um, consulting. Um, and so that space, I've also um, um, amassed a really interesting network of people who are true warriors in trying to break down the toxicity and the um, systemic inequalities of a lot of systems and places of power that a lot of us operate in. Um, I have a lot of friends and a lot of, um, you know, colleagues in that space that, and some of, several of whom are here in this book. I also have family in there, um, including, um, you haven't gotten to the chapter yet, but I do talk about my own family and also a, a figure in my own family who one may consider a gunkle, but actually does not identify as that because they don't identify as queer or gay or anything, actually. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute because I don't want to spoil it too much, but I do want to bring that up later on. Um, and then I, of course, talk about my husband. I talk about some friends. I also bring in like a ton of friends from like my early queer becoming, like the kind of friends that we all made, you know, on the chosen family of the dance floor uh, of early clubs, you know, and, and, I'm very grateful that I am still friends with some of those bitches <laughs> um, and that A, we're still alive and also B, the fact that they're also willing to talk to me. So um, so we were able to, uh, to also capture that friendship and capture that story. Um, and so I was able to bring together, you know, a really interesting pantheon. I think one thing to also note is that if you look at the cover, if you, even if you look at the, um, at the stories and how they're titled, um, there's a myth, myth, there's a mythic quality to them. In fact, the cover people say, "Oh, it looks like a tarot card," and I love when people pick up on the idea that it's a tarot card because my intention with these stories is that while yes, they are 
absolutely based on truth, very, very true stories. I also wanted them to create an almost mythic quality and be used in a way that we as human beings use mythologies to guide, instruct, and direct people. I wanted queer stories to do the same. Um, so yes, there's a universality, what I call an achingly, relentlessly human, um, you know, sort of humanity that, 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 that runs across all of these. While yes, they are universally and apologetically queer, they're also universally human. And I want that to be what makes this attractive and something that people can empathize with regardless of their sexual orientation, their, their gender orientation, their gender expression, regardless of where they come from. Like, I hope that there's something here that people can draw from. But let's be real. It's only for the gays. The straights can find their own thing. They've had enough. Come on. They've had enough. You know what? I mean, and I wrote, like I said, I wrote it for us, right? It's, it's by us. It, it's about us. It's for us. But I will tell you, like, straight people are finding themselves in this book. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's through, the, it's through that central narrative of the black sheep. And the way that I usually like address, like, particularly a, a majority cis het audience that finds my book I ask them, you know, raise your hand if you've ever disappointed your parents with your life decisions. <laughs> Guilty. Right? Whether it is, you know, deciding not to, you know, uh, follow in your father's, you know, career footsteps, not taking on the family store, or coming out and sucking dick. Like, you know, there's, there's a continuum of disappointment and how we disappoint our parents or de- betray the path that our ancestors may have, you know, put us on. Um, and so that alone, like being a black shape, being somebody who questions the norm and conventions. And I find that a lot of the people who I talk to who identify as innovators, entrepreneurs, change makers, people who want to just like make the world a better place or who identify a need in the world that needs to be met are definitely the kinds of people who pick up my book and find themselves and, and see themselves in it, um, you know, even if they don't necessarily identify as queer. Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh. Like there's just something so magical about these queer stories. And there's something so inherently uh, ethereal. I I, I don't know what the word is, but like it's, it's out of this world. And you know what? Just gay people are magic. Okay. Just (laughs) let's settle with that. Gay people are magic. We're able to take how many inches of dick up our asses and not even bat an eye. Um, While getting evicted or getting deported or, and still like manage to like land ourselves elsewhere, maybe on another dick or in another, (laughs) (laughs) we we tend to find the holes we need to see ourselves. (laughs) We tend to fill the holes in the way we find filling. Whether those holes are in our hearts or in a pair of jeans. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, it's always in my butt, Michael. It's always in my butt. Um, But yeah, like there's just something so magical about these stories. And I love how your central theme in this is, um chosen family do you think that like because we're queer we have this inherent ability to find this quote unquote chosen family oh absolutely actually when i was doing my initial research um with my editors and with my publishing company i i did i did a deep dive basically into chosen family as a phenomenon as a research topic academic so in the world of academia chosen families tends to be specifically attributed to the lgbtq community and is cited as something that the lgbtq community not necessarily champions so that's weird for you know for a community to champion but it is so typical and so core to our experience that when academics and 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 researchers talk about the evolution or the changing you know sort of nature of family and they look to chosen families they always 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 point to lgbtq people because it's almost as if it's not necessarily like we invented it, but it is so core to who we are and so true to our experience um, throughout history and today and probably for the rest of our, you know, of, 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 you know, of our communities, you know, like journey that it is almost it is, it is it is who we are. Right. And I think, frankly, it is part of our power because it's our way of bringing together all of the the power, the experiences, the culture, the the narratives of our like biological, you know, inert, you know, sort of experiences. Um, but we bring that together and mix it in with everybody else's sort of like experiences. But but then we bond it with things, with with ideas and with affinities that are far stronger than blood. 
And I feel I feel like that is, if anything, like probably one of the strongest things that I've certainly discovered, you know, in my journey, and certainly many of the gunkles in the book have discovered, is that family has nothing to do with the, with blood, right? And but the bonds of family, um, you know, especially if family, if we define family as where we are loved, where we are nurtured, where we are safe to explore who we are, where we are, um, where we are challenged to be the best versions of who we are, right? Where we are safe to be our truth. Like, that's not always our biological families, right? So sometimes those are spaces that we have to create. And I love that for the LGBTQ community, we are the ones that can essentially instruct the world on how to do that. Can I find my chosen family in the arms of a rich daddy? Because that's where I feel safe. That's the space that I cultivate for myself. As per your definition, Kluya Michael. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. I mean, if that's where you find safety, nurturing, and affirmation, you know, absolutely. <laughs> in daddy's rich bank account? Yes. Hello. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Sometimes I... there are no warmer spaces than than in the embrace of a solvent 401k. Oh, do not get me wet. I am so moist. My moist Listen, sometimes, sometimes when people ask me, I'm like, you know, so how do you identify? I was like, sometimes I, I say, like, I identify in refinancing my mortgage. But that's I'm I'm a tandanako, okay? Like I'm old. I mean I'm middle aged. Like I I like financial stability to come in terms of, you know, like being able to take care of my of my husband, my family, my little doggy, and things like refinancing my mortgage. <laughs> But you know what, Kuya Michael, even though matanda na tayo, we as Filipinos with this beautiful caramel brown skin, we stop aging at like 20 years old and we hit second puberty at like 60. So oh, yeah, absolutely. we're blessed. <laughs> but uh, speaking of 20s, I want to go back to your youth. You know, let's mm-hmm. talk about your uh, experience because you are what, a doubly an immigrant? Yes, technically. Doubly yeah. Yeah. So um, if you don't mind sharing with us uh, your experience of uh, being Filipino in toxic masculine Australia and moving to the United States, like where are you in your journey in those destinations? Right, right. It's like the journey of like, how does a young budding Sharon Conetta survive in Crocodile Dundee land? Thank and you. And try to find themselves in 90210. Yes. Mm-hmm. They find themselves in an episode of either The West Wing or Veep. That's <laughs> that's how I, that's how, if you want to like push me into like different sort of shows, that's what, that, that was my journey. Um, So I, so I grew up under martial law. I grew up, you know, Ferdinand? Yeah, under Ferdinand Marcos. Did you know his son is running for presidency right now? I Lamco, yes, absolutely. Oh my God. And his mother is still there and is oh, a governor. I've been to her house with the shoes. It's fucking oh. insane. Oh, absolutely. And I was I was there during the fall. So um I I distinctly remember being in Edsa. I distinctly remember being like surrounded by the people when it finally fell. Actually, even prior to that, I remember seeing on television Ninoy Aquino get assassinated, like the body on the tarmac. That is literally burned into my brain um and then you know what is also burned into my brain is literally being surrounded by a people rising up and more importantly being part of a family that was a little bit divided because Wait, my mom real, was, sorry sorry to yeah. serve you real time out um cora aquino cory aquino, Cora aquino. We, mm-hmm. sh- we shared the same yeah. birthday but i just wanted to I well, there you go. okay keep going keep going keep going <laughs> Well, so, um, you know, so my, uh, so my mother was very much a revolutionary. She was all about Laban, you know, yellow, you know, she wore yellow. We all wore yellow. But the truth is, and this is a truth that I have had to confront with my, with my own sort of family um, and why I, my, my sort of, my, my, my relationship with my last name will always be somewhat sort of nuanced um, as well, is that the Dumlaus and the Marcuses have been intrinsically linked for many, many generations. And so my father actually had somewhat of an affinity and a loyalty to Ferdinand as well. So 
to to Marcos simply because of my mother, so of my father's family's tie to the Marcoses, and it has been going back generations, back to the mountainsides. In fact, there's apparently a story about how my own Lola, the same one that I consider to be like my first quote unquote gunkle, was actually one of Marcus's first ever campaign managers that helped him win some of his first elections that would eventually land him in the spot as president slash dictator. I'm getting so, so so it was very difficult for me to also see what happens when you're like living in this like bi-political sort of environment. I mean, my father eventually, of course, like supported, um, you know, Corey and supported the revolution. But I do distinctly remember that there was always that tension. Um, and then from there, being out there in the streets, seeing the fall and then watching my family realize that not only was there chaos before, that there, but there would be chaos afterwards and that it was probably safest for us as a family to immigrate, if not flee altogether, to my father's family who happened to be in Australia. So I will caveat what I'm about to say by saying that I love Australia. I love Australians. You know, um, hello, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. oi, oi, oi. All of your Australian listeners, I love and adore you. Uh, but Australia is also... <laughs> no, Australia not Chris Pratt. Also... Chris Hemsworth. Sorry, Chris... wrong Chris. Oh, my God. You identified the bad. wrong I know. I am homophobic. I'm homophobic. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, you're, you're probably going to be like, you're going to have a couple points deducted from your like gay card. My gay card. Oh no, I'm less gay. gay. Oh no. <laughs> you're not less gay. You just need to suck more dick to get the free ice. Perfect. Coffee. Okay. I can there do that. <laughs> so I, um, so I will never forget when I was seven years old, this was about three months into living in Australia and I was on the playground. Um, also mind you, I am still very much Filipino. I barely speak English. You know, I'm still learning my English. Aww. And this young girl comes up to me and says, Oi, Chinese man, like, what are you doing here? Go back home, you know, tell your parents and all you Chinese, your chink, like you're all stealing our jobs, you know, go home. And I'm like, it's, I know, I know about what? First of all, I mean, I'm not more. <laughs> exactly. I didn't even have a goggle. Like I am Benoit, I am not Chinese. How dare you? And then uh, that became sort of literally as seven years old, like that was my first encounter with racism and xenophobia. And then I found out later, years and years, years later, that my parents actually experienced some of the very worst racism they ever had um, in their careers. Um, like literally all like er, all, whatever you think, oh, we have racism, like in the workplace being like you know, kept away from opportunities, you know, being uh, tamped down in terms of your career, like mobility and whatnot. They experienced that to the point that they also got like people literally telling them, um, you know, you're only here because you're uh, because you're Asian and uh, oh, you're not going to get too far. Like literally, I can't believe my parents. Like I, I cannot believe my parents like put up with that yeah. crap. For you so, would so think long. that a country built on prisoners and outcasts would have a little more tolerance, but like. Well, except, and I remind people this, is that by the time we immigrated there in the mid-80s, it had only been, like, not that long before before um, Australia had ended its white-only immigration policy. Mm. Like, barely, a, barely more than a decade. So they had literally a white-only immigration policy up until, like, the 70s or something. When literally indigenous people have been there for, like, exactly. ever? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, and the funny thing is, like, that little girl, I still want to forget, she actually said, you know what, you're taking away from us native Australians who've lived here. And, of course, I didn't know enough about Australian politics or its, like, cruelty to its indigenous population. We would say, uh, you mean the Aboriginal people that you have literally <laughs> stolen from for the past hundreds of years? Are you referring to your pasty, pale, burnt, white, like, who <laughs> came here as criminals? Like, what are you talking about, mate? I, of course, was not witty yet. I was only seven. I barely spoke English. So, so that for me was my Australia. And the thing about Australia too is like it is incredibly masculine in its presentation. So not only was it also very racist and it was very fresh in its idea of like what multiculturalism was, it was also very manly sports oriented um, to the point that I had to learn how to swim to be able to graduate. I had to learn how to hike and like and survive out in the wilderness and to survive out in the wilderness in Australia is in and of itself a sport because I don't know if you know about Australia, but everything there is genetically bred to kill human beings. Kangaroos, spiders, snakes. Like, yes, yeah, snakes, baristas. Like they will literally <laughs> kill you. <laughs> they will pump extra, you know, syrup just to give you diabetes. <laughs> and we're Filipino, we're genetically predisposed to diabetes. Exactly. So, and that's the thing about Australia it was like it was a hot as a young feminine like queer like queer becoming immigrant boy it was so hard to grow up there 
And I was also growing up in the Filipino community and we found the Filipino community church and they were an amazing, amazing community, but they were also really difficult to be queer in. And so from there, we then immigrated to, so at some point my family had years and years prior, um, you know, applied to become citizens or at least to go to the United States to join my mother's family. And instead they took years and years and years, 16 years to finally give them basically that, uh, that, that, that agreement or so that allowance to go to the United States. And so eventually we packed everything that we owned and we went to the United States to join my family's, uh, my mother's family in Southern California, specifically in Santa Barbara, California. Um, and, there is where that is where I also discuss. So, if I discovered racism in Australia, what I discovered in um, America Ooh. was uh, homophobia <laughs> or, you know, extreme homophobia. <laughs> and in California, I thought that would be a very liberal state. Right, exactly. You think it would be a very, very liberal state, uh, but not in high school. <laughs> mm. You know, not in. You not found your 13th in, reason in high school, huh? Right, exactly. So, you know, especially in the 90s. Like in, in the 90s, we, we didn't quite exactly have gay proms yet. We would eventually. And actually, I was fortunate in the sense that I was in the cusp, in the precipice. In fact, when I did eventually go, you know, start to explore my identity, that was when um, gay proms or specifically lawsuits against, um, you know, uh, about against school districts for not protecting LGBTQ kids were starting to become a thing. So there was more attention to it. But prior to all of that news, there was very much a hyper-religious... So California is a very religious place, especially certain areas of California can be very hyper-religious, can be very tr more traditional than you would expect, even amongst the hippies. Um, and then I specifically grew up in a Filipino sort of community, a very Latino size. So, you know, when I, when I was growing up, I was like the only... One of two Filipinos in the entire school. So for us to find safety, we found the Mexicans who adopted us as their own. So I was basically Mexican for a part of high school. I didn't deny Hola, it. Como estas. Exactly. I didn't deny it, you know? And, um, and that's also, I think, what also set me on the path of, like, really loving Latin men. I mean, I'm married to a Hispanic man. I'm, I'm, I'm married to a South American, I think, for a reason. Who's very, very tall and very cute. I am and very broad-shouldered and very hairy, which means that I can lower my heating bills because I can just snuggle, snuggle up. Snuggle him. with him? Oh, my God. I'm jealous. Can you find me one here in Toronto, please? Of course. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the best way to do that is to come down to D.C. So. Right. We'll call the brain trust of gunkles everywhere to find Tim. Him a man, preferably rich. No, I'm kidding. You don't have to be rich. You just well, have to be rich in spirit. If you wanted yourself a rich, albeit closeted daddy, like Santa Barbara in the 90s was it. Um, because I would have been a homophobia, baby. The homophobia <laughs> was such that it forced a lot of people into closets. Um, and then and then, and that's what the, sort of like the environment that I was living in. I was in church. Uh, so the other thing about, about California too was like that was when I was really, really, really trying to pray the gay away. That was when I was using my talents in in music um, to uh, to really try to like ensconced myself in faith. So, and if this in of itself did not like turn everyone onto the idea that I or to the reality that I was a queer, was the fact that I became a music church worship music prodigy at the age of at the age of thirteen, where I was leading worship music with my mother on guitar my father singing my brother on drums and my other brother like on a trumpet like we were, the, we were the filipino pentecostal partridge family <laughs> where we literally were up there leading worship with me on the piano as like a gay like kirk franklin gayer I love it. Like literally singing, you know, psalms, singing, trying to bring some gospel into these white ass churches. Like I was literally like, and then, and, and that was my life. That was That's my camp. Life. That's very that was camp. camp. And that was also technically my, where I thought that I was going to create safety so that either if I wasn't going to, you know, pray the gay away that way, I was at least going to armor myself with deflective sort of like mirrored armor so that people would like look at me and they say, oh my God, he plays piano so well. And we are like moving to the spirit. There's no way he gay, right? <laughs> or we don't care that he gay or whatever, right? So I would never have to say those words. Well, as it points out, as it comes out, like it didn't quite happen that way. I did end up coming out. And frankly, at my coming out, that's when they basically ejected me and the worst part is not just me, but my entire family from ch from church, really, from service, from worship. And when we could no longer be the Filipino Pentecostal Partridge family, 
um, we basically left the church altogether, which for me was probably the most heartbreaking thing, was that not only did they deny me my faith, they more importantly denied my parents their faith. And arguably, I think at that time, that's probably when my parents needed the faith the most. Um, so so for me, that is basically what California gave me. <laughs> but at the California same time, gave you trauma, huh? Okay, California gave me faith-based trauma. So Australia was race-based trauma. This was faith and homophobic trauma. But I will also say that the good news is at the same time, Australia, like, so the California was where I ultimately came out. I then took my budding gayness and went back to Australia to go to University of Sydney, where I lived by myself for the most part while going back to my father's family from time to time just to survive. Um, and then I would literally like just blossom and like explore gay Sydney to go to Newtown, you will go Oxford Street, go to Ark over there in the Sydney Harbour, you know, in the Sydney Harbour area. Like I literally became sort of like, you know, my true gay queer party self in Sydney, brought that back, um, moved to West Hollywood and basically started to navigate West Hollywood back um, in when I came back to the United States. And then found myself eventually in New York City and then eventually DC. So even though many times, many ways, I would say like both Australia and California were the roots of my trauma, it was also where I ultimately found the path to my triumph. We'll be right back after this commercial break. Yes. Hello, all my little sluts. It's me, Mama Slut. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just wanted to hop on here real quick to let you in on a sexy little deal. Do you like feeling sexy and looking sexy? Of course you do. Only my listeners are sexy as fuck. I have partnered with fetishwear designer Dale Kuda to bring you the hottest deals on custom jock straps, harnesses, hats, and more. Head over to dalekuda.com, that's D-A-L-E-K-U-D-A.com, and use code SEXEDWITHTIM at checkout for 25% off the entire store. Yeah, you heard me. 25% off. And, cherry on top, free shipping! Oh my god! (laughs) I have a few of the stuff that he has made for me, and... Girl, I'm wearing it right now. I'm wearing like a little jock strap so that I could easily just like slip a little butt plug or dildo every now and then here and there. And I'm on the train. I'm just like, uh, 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 thank you, Dale. <laughs> That's dalecuda.com with the code SEXEDWITHTIM for 25% off your entire purchase with free shipping. With a deal like that, I swear I could come buckets, honey. <laughs> Hey, you disgusting pervs. We all like sex toys, right? Nipple clamps, vibrators, masturbators, oh my. Good For Her has one of the best selection of sex toys, learning resources, online workshops, and gender expression materials you can't find anywhere else. Go to goodforher.com and use code SEXED with TIM10 for 10% off your purchase of any of the toys bought online. That's G-O-O-D-F-O-R-H-E-R.com and the code S-E-X-E-D-W-I-T-H-T-I-M-1-0 at checkout for 10% off your purchase of any of the toys bought online. And they ship worldwide. Trans-inclusive, feminist, and pleasure-focused, Good For Her has been doing the Lord's work since 1997, bringing you everything you need to get that... Uh... Uh... The show is about to begin. Yes. Oh, oh my God. That's such a beautiful. And I'm very honored that you took me on that journey because that was a hell of a roller coaster ride. <laughs> and I want to go again. Mm. Um, but oh my goodness. I can relate so much because my coming out experience was a little similar like that in that, um, you know, I grew up in the Philippines until I was about 12 years old and we immigrated to Canada um, and I had my own like set of gunkles. Uh, I would actually consider my Lolo a gunkle because um, he was like, uh, this guy spoke six different languages. He was like the rebel of the family. He spied for the Philippine army when Jap- when Japan uh Oh my god, wait, too. Oh my god, hello. Intelligence officer. Yeah, she was also a spy. That was her famous big thing. Yeah, and um like he spoke uh what is it? Nihongo was Oh the, yeah. 
no, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, the funny thing is uh, he would be so strict until I came along and uh, he started to loosen up and that um, the guy let me play with a loaded gun. And my parents were like, dad, I don't get out of What are you doing? Letting him play with a gun. And he's like, relax, it's not loaded. And then my dad goes to grab this old school pistol that says, and there's just like bullets in there. I'm like, <laughs> and then my, my Lola said, oops. <laughs> oops. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> so I definitely identify with the whole like your uh, Lola and your Lola being your quote unquote gunkles, even though they're not like gunkle in the gay uncle sense. They are rebellious in the way that they live their life they break away from tradition and also uh i feel like just you know in general my entire family has been quote unquote gunkles because i come from a line of sex workers um literally swingers my lolo is like he's got i think 30 something aunts and uncles um, wow. who are all born out of wedlock, who are all born from different partners because his uh, elders were uh, prostitutes and swingers. Yeah. So we've got a huge family. That's yeah, we've got a huge Yeah. And um, he continues to say, may he rest in peace. He continues to say until his dying breath that like basically all of California is related to the Lagman clan. So I'm like, you know what? I got a place to stay. I got a place to stay in California. I can, I just have to stay away from the Filipinos in case we're related. If I want to, fu- I want to fuck you. Sorry, Californian Filipinos. We could be related somehow. <laughs> Whoops. But um, yeah. So uh, on the topic of coming out, uh, I want to go back to your book on page ninety-seven, where you talk about your coming out. Uh, and I, th- I think it's so beautiful. I want to preface this with um, you were coming from a party, was yep. it? You were coming yes. from a party, and then your mom starts to get really, really suspicious. So if mm. you're down, I would love to do a little bit of, I was going to say foreplay, role play. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like all foreplay is role play, and all role play Very is role play. <laughs> Ooh, hello. Excuse the fuck out of me. I'm no longer a sex educator here, huh? <laughs> um, okay, so uh, let's do a little bit of role play for the audience here about your coming out experience, and then we're going to talk about it. I'm going to play the role of your mom. Of course. Because I'm naturally so old and decrepit. Um <laughs> No, no disrespect to your mom, but um, <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. mommy, if you're listening to this, what he meant to say was beautiful and vibrant, maganda, vibrant, uh, you know, with a great alto tenor, with a great alto voice. The mm-hmm. we're just matching, Tita. Sorry, <laughs> but yes, uh, I want to go through this little dialogue because I think it is so pivotal in your coming out experience because it's kind of similar to mine and i'll tell you in a bit but um okay i'm gonna play your mom and then uh you play yourself duh okay so i'm gonna be um where have you been my mother asked i'm sorry i'm late i was studying with friends and i i lost track of time i lied you're lying she quipped why have you been out so much who is that boy you're always with where are you going with the car what does it matter i shouted with my anger simmering Listen, I bring home good grades, I work, I bring home money. I take care of my brothers, so what if I go out? Don't talk back to me, she yelled. I'm still your mother. That's still my car. You're not driving it anymore. That's so unfair, I responded. I need the car for work. Take the bus, she snapped back. But I needed to take my boy... I stopped. I couldn't believe how close I came to saying... What's happening to you, Anak? She asked, her words trembling. Sino ba ikaw? It's like I don't even know you anymore. No, you don't, Mom. I started to cry. You don't know me at all. Is it the drugs? She asked. What? <laughs> I stammered. No, no, it, it, it's not drugs, Mom. It, that boy is my boyfriend. Ano? My mother asked in our native Tagalog. I'm... I'm gay, mom. Then, without skipping a beat, she said, I don't care what you are, you're still not driving the car. <laughs> I knew instantly that saying those words to my mother was a bridge I could never uncross. We held each other's gaze for an eternity, the silence broken only by my sobs as I sat on a chair. After a few minutes, 
she walked over to me with tears racing down her face, took my head and held it against her heart. She cried. I love you too, mom, I answered. I don't know what to say or do now. Why don't you go to sleep and we'll talk in the morning? Okay, I stammered, getting up and heading to my room. Oh, and son, she added, don't tell your father yet. I don't think he's ready. So, oh my God, Michael, that story rang so true to me because in my coming out experience, I came out on my 21st birthday. Mm, Wow. I made the conscious decision to do it on my birthday because I was going to be like, it's my birthday. You can't be mean to me. Um, (laughs) Because the way your mom responded to that, I don't care. Just whatever you do, you can't take the car. And I'm like, my parents reacted the same way when I told them on my 21st birthday that I'm gay. And then they're like, we love you no matter what, but can you please come upstairs? The pizza's getting cold. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) they care about the pizza more than their son's sexuality, which is like so amazing and nonchalant and matter of fact but i want to know in that dialogue when you came out to your mom what was going through your head what were the emotions running through you so like every single queer little gay boy out there my mother was also my best friend you know in a lot of ways she was the one who really understood me especially because i had such a strained relationship with my father um, and I think every, I think a lot of boys out there, especially young gay boys out there, they, they're familiar with this concept of, you know, like whenever you would like swish, you like, you would swish your wrist, right? Or you would walk a little bit or you would walk, you know, you would talk a little sweet, you know, I, or you talk a little, you know, sassy or you'd basically, bakla you know, extra a little, mejong. you know, a little bejong, a bakla, you know, mejong, you know, kind of like, you know. Like my father would take a nickname that I used to have. So my name is Michael. So my nickname used to be Michaelo or Kilo. That last name was Kilo. That was my nickname for a long time. And then all of a sudden, when I started to swish, my father would yell Kilo. And with saying Kilo, that was the indication that I needed to straighten up. I needed to stop waving my hands. I needed to straighten up. I needed to deepen my voice. I needed to basically become the straight that he was raising me to be right <laughs> and so for my my father and i we had a really contentious relationship for a really long time because it was becoming increasingly apparent that i would never become sort of like that alpha male eldest child that and i'm the eldest child in his in, of, of of his generation right so i am the firstborn of his siblings children and so i was meant to carry the family name forever and and I was supposed to be sort of like that strong kuya that, and I kuyaed everyone. Before I was a gunkel, I was a kuya to not just my two younger brothers, but to my 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 younger cousins and everyone thereafter. And I was supposed to be the strong kuya. And I guess I defied that every single time I was bakla. And so he would he started using my my nickname as a pejorative, as an indicator that I was too gay, and then. So that strained my relationship with him. And so that turned me then to my mom. And my mom was the one who gave me music. It's not to say that my dad didn't give me music because he definitely, he gave me Frank Sinatra. And that's the greatest gift I give to any sort of Filipino boy. <laughs> but my mother gave me, you know, like a love for using music to express uh, joy, to express truth, to express sorrow. And I really, really owe that to her. But she also gave me a love for just being creative as well. And, and, and so for many ways, like she really was like my, my best friend, like growing up um, and, and my ally. And so when I came out to her, I thought, oh, my God, am I going to lose my best friend? Am I going to lose that's that kinship with her? Um, and I will say this, like, even though, you know, there was a moment where, you know, our, our relationship was somewhat strained. It wasn't because she was rejecting me. It was re- it was because she was afraid for me and she was afraid of what she was afraid of about her complicity in this more difficult path that I was now on as now a gay man. She was worried that your experience as a gay man would make your life way more difficult. than Right. Because she already knew that as a Filipino, as a brown person, as an immigrant, 
going through the racism, right, that they had in Australia and, and seeing sort of like the ways that they and people like us struggle basically in a predominantly white society, they knew that I was already going to have a hard time, which is why she and my dad and my Lola pressed, you know, be excellent, always bring home good grades, dress well, speak well, because those are the things that are going to compensate for whatever discriminatory perceptions people have about you because they don't think you'll be automatically credible or competent as a brown immigrant. You've got to blend in with the code switching. Or, or not blend in, you've got to stand out as excellent because that's the only way they'll accept you. Right. And so and so for my mom, she was like, now you've got to do it even more like you don't have you don't have room for mediocrity, let alone failure. And she knew that if that was going to be my truth, that that was going to be a very, very hard expectation and life for myself and a hard path for me. Uh, I'm so tired of being brown and gay and being expected to excel. Can't the new representation just be mediocre gays? <laughs> I'm so tired of seeing gays trying to excel in things. Like, I want to see Ryan Murphy create a series where it's just like a boring old gay. <laughs> like, that's the show for me. Just well, a boring old gay, but you know the drama. So, you know, he marries an alien, for example, and he has to, like, basically be a boring old gay in space. <laughs> Can you believe some old gay? Like, it's got to have some sort of magical element to it. Um, but uh, speaking of old gays... Um, I want to know, what is it from our queer elders that we can learn from mm-hmm. besides just the idea of chosen family? So the very um, so the book ends on the elder, and it's based on a story based off of um, a relative that I have, who um, in many ways was the relative that really, I think, like paved a path, whether they knew it or not, whether he knew it or not. Um, he was born in the Philippines. And um, in this chapter, I introduced two concepts. The first one is utang naloob, which for your listeners in Tagalog means debt of the inner self, the debt of the heart. Um, and that is a debt basically that we owe to people who, you know, do something so meaningful to to for us, you know, to either save us, to help us prosper. But it's a very, very sort of like deep debt that you owe to somebody, which in my book, you'll realize can be used as a double-edged sword, right? It can show gratitude, but can also show, it can also anchor you and frankly, imprison you in then some expectations. Um, and so I talk about Utang Lalaob, and I also talk about this idea of the hidden, of the hidden. Um, and so he grew up in, in, in the Visayas, um, and he basically fa- looked, he knew that there was something different about him, but he knew that there was something different about him that was reflected in all of the tomboys, baklas, and the transgender people around him, who he noticed the family would constantly hide away. And that's why that part of the chapter is called The Hidden. And he decided that he was not going to be that, right? That if he was different, right, that he would never, never be hidden and also never hide others as well. But what he discovered was why what the reason why these people were were being hidden away is because obviously people were concerned that they would bring shame to the family. Um, but then at the same time, they would force them to to labor with literally no compensation whatsoever. And that laboring for the family, whether you would be the family's default hairdresser or default stylist or default decorator, or in some cases, you'd be the, the family's bodyguard, you'd be the family's, you'd be, you'd serve in some capacity for the family, sometimes without any sort of compensation, without any utang back to them, because the family perceived that that in of itself was the gift that they give to you, and that you should feel grateful that we're even allowing you as a bakla, as a tomboy, as a trans person to even you know, in, exist in our family. We're letting you contribute in a way that you can't because the way that Filipinos are supposed to contribute is by siring children to pro- to progress our line, right? We, we grow our family and that's how you contribute. But as a bakla, you can't. So he saw- So take like, it up the oh. ass, excuse me. <laughs> so he saw that and he said, no, that's not going to be me. And so at some point he decided once again to become the excellent, he hid behind excellence, he hid behind good grades and he found himself basically my- winning opportunities or earning opportunities to eventually immigrate to New York City. And in New York City, he immigrated in the in the 1980s, where he was not necessarily confronted by racism and homophobia the way I was when I immigrated. He was confronted by AIDS. Um, and so he then found himself, you know, 
living a double life at this point where he had a sister and he had some family, you know, you know, nearby um, who he would help basically take care as a gunkle. He would take care of the kids. He would help them basically, um, you know, with housework because he needed work, right? He needed to, to, to work. Um, well, at the same time, he would go to the city and essentially bury his friends. And so he was living this constant double life of like, you know, I need to be there for my family because my family is the one that brought me away from the toxicity of the Philippines and I needed to come here and, and, and survive and thrive. And they gave me that opportunity. So I need to repay my debt to them. But at the same time, I need to repay the debt that I have to this community in New York of people who were seeing me for who I am, for allowing me to love the way I, I inherently love, but they're dying. And so because of, I think from my, the way that I sort of like psychologize or, or depicted in my book, I think for many, many reasons, I think that is the reason why he himself has never identified as queer or gay. In fact, actually, when I sent him back his chapter, he refu- he took out the word gunkle all over the really? place. Really? Yeah. He took out the word gay, one queer, the word gunkle. And anytime I referred, I used queer and gay and baklat to refer to him, he would cr- correct it. And, 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 and what, and the reason why I, I bring that up is because I wanted to write that story to honor every single queer relative who was never really given the privilege or the space to identify however they wanted, they could identify. Because to my uncle, um, you know, to be gay meant either to be hidden away, to be abused by family, or to die of a disease, right? And so he lived in what I call a protective ambiguity. And I feel like that is true of a lot of our ancestors, uh, our queer ancestors, right? There was a protective ambiguity. It's like, was she gay or was her girl, her travel companion, just a friend? Or was that her lifetime companion? Just two good platonic pals. Two good platonic pals who have lived in the same single bedroom apartment in New York City for the past 40 years. Um, you know, and so I wanted to honor that. I wanted to honor those people because they are also our ancestors. Um, and more importantly, I think for me, it demonstrates really the responsibility we have now as those of us who have the privilege to be out, to identify, to have a community, um, to honor their struggle by fighting for ours, by making sure we never go back to that, by making sure that, you know, if you identify as queer, you can identify as queer out of pride and not out of fear, right? Um, and so I, I wanted to do, and also at the same time, I also wanted to honor um, this idea that, you know, we as queer people, we don't have an easy ancestry to push back, to, to look back on, right? We have to labor to uncover our truths and our histories. In fact, if you think about it, it's only been recently, right, that we are really acknowledging the role of LGBTQ people, let alone LGBTQ people of color in creating our history. And so I feel like, you know, this is something that we have to continue to do so. But I also am discovering and what I want to sort of like demonstrate with the entirety of the book is this really unique place we are in society, in history, where for the first time we have multiple generations of LGBTQ people coexisting. You know, we have, I mean, I, 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 I read my book with kids as young as 12 and 13 in gay straight alliances in high school. Then there's like us, you know, folks, you know, between our, 20s and 40s. And then you have the Matanda, the elders who are now in their 80s and 90s who survived the AIDS crisis. When in history have we all been together as out people, like trying to negotiate a multi-generational chosen family, right? And so what you'll see across all the chapters is that there is a multi-generational queer narrative and story that threads along all of it. Because I want to recognize the fact that our history isn't dead. Our elders aren't all dead. Our elders are becoming right? We ourselves are becoming the elders. We ourselves are becoming the history. And if we are to not repeat everything, I don't ever want to repeat the times when we would hide and deny our queer ancestry, but the way that many gunkles and aunties and, and all those people in our past suffered through, like that denial of, of, of existence, that erasure, that instead that we chart a path forward where we absolutely elevate them, we celebrate them, and we make sure that they are recognized as the heroes that they and we are. Oh my God, that's just like, oh, beautiful. <laughs> put that whole, put that whole thing on the shirt. Like, oh, <laughs> oh my God, I can't. It's, it's beautiful. Um, like, uh, just some really like quick final thoughts. Mm-hmm. Anyone can be a gunkle. You're using your queer lived experience as this way to teach the generations before or after us um resilience you're te- you're teaching resilience you're teaching uh authenticity uh with 
so much aplomb and and confidence and how do we use that that experience i'm 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 like just as a final question how do we use our experience now whether or not we're self-identified as gunkles mm-hmm. to teach the kids after us and to honor those before us so basically how are we leaving the space that we come into better than when we entered it thank you so much for saying that because that's actually that is the one of the biggest ending sort of like a messages that I have in my book is always leave a space more welcoming than how you found it. You know, because so for many of us, you know, who have the the opportunity, the privilege and sometimes the luck frankly to create a chosen family around us or to find workplaces where we can be ourselves or to just to be part of communities, you know, where we can thrive, right? Um, there is a responsibility not only to protect that space, but to broaden it, especially for a younger generation that is becoming increasingly more nuanced in their identity. As gender, as sexuality, as identity itself becomes more and more fluid, I think we, particularly as queer elders, have to identify ways that we can expand our own education, expand our own understanding of the beautiful diversity of humanity, and that we're constantly expanding that space to be to protect new ways of being queer, of new ways of being human. Um, and I feel like that is certainly a lesson that many of us who have found those spaces and who work maybe to create or protect them, that is, I think, a responsibility we have is to constantly make it more welcoming for the new generation, however they choose to identify or however they choose to express their humanity. Expanding space, making the space more accommodating. I feel like you just described my asshole. Um, <laughs> and all of Toronto, really. <laughs> all of Tor- Kuya Michael, did you know that I have the title of the Gorilla Grip asshole of the greater Toronto area? Excuse me. Wow. <laughs> Tight and ever expanding. And, and I am, they have uh, to find a solvent to get you off of it. <laughs> I am just a cosmic anomaly as declared by NASA. But, um, <laughs> Kuya Ate Michael, thank you so much for coming on to my show. Uh, You're so amazing and so full of wisdom and just like beautiful. I can't get enough of you. The listeners can't get enough of you. So please make like a butt and plug away anything that you want people to find. Yeah, so my book is now available online. Um, Well, yes, the easiest place to get it is on Amazon, but it's also available um, anywhere that you get your books um, available online. Um, It also is requestable uh, in local bookstores. So as much as possible, I always try to push people to to purchase and request it through your your local bookstores. It is also available through that. Um, You can also find out more about um, my activities with the book, whether they be my interviews um, or my current national book tour throughout the U.S., um, you can find out all about that on the website, www.thewisdomofgunkles.com. You can also follow me on socials, specifically Instagram, Facebook, um, on at um, Michael Dumlao or the hashtag The Wisdom of Gunkles. Thank you so much, Kuya Ate Michael. And to all the listeners that have made it this far into this chaotic ass episode, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Sex Ed with Tim podcast. Make sure you leave a review, uh, follow, do whatever it is to support the show. And just thank you so much. And with that, I bid you all adieu, a good night, and whatever it is. And I will see you at the next episode. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Sex Ed with Tim podcast. Sex Ed with Tim is created and produced by me, Tim Lagman. Music is Aces High by Kevin McLeod. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at GaySlutClown and at Sex Ed with Tim. You can also like and follow me on the Sex Ed with Tim Facebook page. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Even better, you can also support the show on Patreon, where you can get early access to ad-free episodes and more. Thanks for all your support, you dirty little slut. Mwah!